Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I'm your host, Yona Weiss, as always, excited to be here on this beautiful morning and together with another amazing guest. We have Samuel Sells, founder of Wild Mountain Capital. Good morning to you. How are you doing, Sam? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on the pod, Yona. It's great. It's a pleasure. It's always good to, you know, meet and talk with like-minded people, especially when they also have a nice beard. So, you know, it's good yeah. to... <laughs> I trimmed it up yesterday. It's not near as uh, long as it was a little while ago, but nothing compared to yours, you know. <laughs> this is uh, this is hard to compare to. <laughs> There's very few people on on my podcast that have had, but we had a nice exchange once with Beardy Brandon Turner when he was on the podcast about beards, and oh yeah, and, you know, he said I would win in a beard competition. So that's that's good to know. <laughs> that is good to know. <laughs> I'd love our, our listeners to get a little bit of context who we're talking about today. I introduce you as the founder of Wild Mountain Capital. You're a multifamily right syndicator, real estate investment company, but you obviously didn't start out that way. No one starts out or very few people start out in a syndication company. You come from somewhere else. I know that you served in the Air Force and thank you for your service in that. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory of you know what that was like and you know how you got into real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my Air Force journey. So I joined, I enlisted in 2003 and went off to basic training at the Lackland Air Force Base, like everybody else does. And, you know, quite a paradigm shift, um, change of lifestyle. I was 23 years old. I've been married for a few years or a couple of years and have been working in construction, you know, for the previous three years before that. So, you know, uh, got into it and just, you know, off on a different adventure, off to Germany and as a firefighter. And, you know, life was great and terrible at the same time. And, you know, it was being in the military, you know. So while I was there, you know, I've I'd, I'd been doing construction before, got in, you know, apprentice as an electrician and then got into remodeling homes and, you know, really high end remodels of $50,000 kitchens and $50,000 bathrooms. I mean, just really beautiful high-end stuff. There's three of us and we would do faux paint because faux paint was all the rage back then. And that's gone away for the most part now, you know, antiquing cabinets and doing all these, you know, very unique, interesting things. So, you know, just got very, very comfortable with that. Had grown up in, uh, in a, you know, very poor circumstances where we were constantly working on our house and always chasing down, you know, I don't want to say get rich quick schemes, but, you know, make a lot of money really quickly and, you know, flip a house or do this or do that. And, you know, none of those ever really panned out very well for us. So you mean your parents were involved in that as well when you were growing up? Yeah, they were involved in it, not systematically, not really as a business, but just kind of as a side hustle whenever they could. Mm -hmm. And so we would move into a house and clean it up and sell it and try and make a little bit of money and spend it all gotcha. and then try it all again. But with that in mind, you know, while I was in the Air Force, the firefighter once, you know, I was in Germany, we traveled all over the place. And then we moved to Idaho was our next base, Mountain Home Air Force Base. And when I was there, I partnered up with another guy and we just started flipping homes on our days off because we worked these 24 hour shifts. And the next day was off. So we would go and, you know, 
he would buy the house, I would do all the construction and he would make all the money and then I would get paid a little bit. And I'm like, dude, I don't like how this is working. <laughs> so that partnership didn't work out very well. And then I started it on my own and partnered very fairly with another partner where we just split it. You know, they would do all the construction. I would do all the finance bills, take care of the purchasing of the property and analysis and all that stuff. And and then they would do the work and we'd just do a 50-50 split. Much better. Right. Yeah, that's a much better <laughs> business model. Much better business model than the, the 90-10 or, or the 80, yeah. you know, if that. So, you know, learn very quickly that I need to have things in writing and, you know, I work with people I trust and, and right. so forth. And, you know, and, and that just kind of grew from there a little bit. And so... I continued to be in the military, got out after my first deployment and got my degree in business strategy from BYU and then went to work for Deloitte as a consultant, quickly realized that that was not where I wanted to spend my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, undergrad business school and in business school, everyone talks about consulting as being like the the thing to do, right? Like, yeah, this is Mm -hmm. boring and nobody gives a, nobody cares about anybody. just want to make some money. So Went back, joined the Air Force. I got into healthcare and really one of my big passions in life and something I'd always been thinking about was traveling the world doing, you know, global health. And I, mm. you know, realized that I didn't really want to be a doctor. That wasn't my jam. And so I did the business side of healthcare and coordinating and setting up systems and building clinics or healthcare centers in Africa and Asia and, you know, oh. just really grew um, to really, really love global health and health security issues. And, you know, through that, I'm working with USAID. It's been a year at USAID doing a lot of global health stuff and as well as emergency, international emergency response stuff that I got really, you know, it just got really into my blood and already liked being fair, already really liked working with other people, already really loved working with folks who were in those lower income classes or socioeconomic uh, stages in life. And, you know, that kind of grew, kept growing into the passion and then connected it. So as if you're going to go out and do healthcare as a business, you need a, a lot of, of wealth behind you and you're going to do a very small. Yeah. So we wanted to do something bigger and we looked at the other, you know, the trifecta. So financial security, housing security, you know, medical security or healthcare security. And, and we thought, okay, let's do housing security. We already flipped homes and and that's where we went. Interesting. Wow. So you're essentially taking that passion about, you know, helping in a different way. Obviously people use that passion wherever they can you know, place it, but the housing crisis that, you know, really plagues the world, but even in the United States, meaning that's what you've kind of taken. And that's the, the impetus behind the wild mountain capital. Yeah, that's it. You know, I, I was living in Alaska when we started. There's a lot of distress housing in Alaska. If you've ever been to Anchorage, it's very interesting how much distress there is in the city. And, you know, they just had these huge ups and downs. Every time Congress says we're not going to do anything with oil anymore, it just, you know, wipes out those communities or, you know, they, you know, change policies, procedures. And, yeah, just kills them. And uh, it's a shame. Yeah, they're not alone. And there's plenty, you know, tons of communities yeah, like that. Around tons the country, of communities so. around that. And, and, you know, the understanding downstream effects of our uh, policies and procedures. So my master's degree was in health policy. We learned a lot about policy and then going out into the world and taking, you know, what the PhD said, hey, this is how it should work. I and mean, you go out in the world and you're like, hmm, 
that was a nice idea, buddy. PhD, I'm sure you, you know, learned everything there is to know from your books. Right. But in reality, the downstream effects is that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, and so I've just been a real big fan of doers and you know, people on the ground who are doing and learning. And so instead of being like a, a warrior poet, you know, I, I was like a, a warrior doer, right? So combat advisor in the military, working with foreign militaries, helping them develop and sustain healthcare systems and medical logistics and medical, you know, training and, and all these different things. Like the doing needs to be help drive the learning, right? How do I improve this? The next step, right? And then how does the policy, you know, support those steps on the ground versus, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, we think, oh, if we do this thing, you know, this is going to happen, but that's not necessarily how it works. So is that kind of outlook driving you in terms of the the specific markets and communities that you invest in? I mean, how do you make that determination? Obviously, there are so many different options to go with. I mean, you're local, you're in Texas now, right? So is there, is that your primary focus in the local communities uh, surrounding you or have you spread out and found other markets outside of that that fit the criteria? So you can almost go into any market and find properties that have where responsibility has been abdicated by property owners. It's like this old school mentality that I'm going to buy this property. I'm going to spend as little as possible on maintenance, taking care of it, and I'm going to charge my renters as much as possible, right? Right. And old school mentality. <laughs> old school mentality. And we buy these properties. And some of them have, you know, in a pure numerical standard, they've done, you know, fairly well, right? Or they've achieved, you know, what they were looking for. Now, could they have done better? Absolutely. You take care of the property, take care of the residents, you provide for them value that they're willing to pay for because it means something to them, then the value of the property is, you know, twofold or threefold or tenfold. So they leave a lot of money on the table, but in their own self-righteousness or, you know, selfishness, they didn't have to lift a finger. They didn't have to take care. They didn't have to think about anyone other than their own pocketbook and brag about how little they pay everybody in the system. Right. Right. But it leads for a great opportunity for you and the, the next buyer. That's right. So then it leads for a great opportunity for us. And so I think, you know, we've been toying around with this idea of clean investing. And uh, or, you know, I really want to, you know, share some of my thoughts about that. So not to be confused with cleaning your dirty money, like laundering, you know, money, but you know, as a clean investment, when we invest in energy and we're doing solar energy or other things, we're talking about a, a way to minimize the impact on our planet, minimize our climate impact, reduce the negative impact on our future, our kids' futures, our kids' kids' generational impact, right? And the same thing goes, you know, clean energy, clean water, right? We all like to drink clean water. I think everyone likes that, right? You look at Flint, Michigan, where they simply didn't want to spend the extra money to take care of all the downstream residents because they don't lower social economic class. They don't vote anyways, or whatever the mindset was, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who knows what the rationale for that was? Hard to know. It's hard to know, right? But at the end of the day, they went with whatever they thought was easier. And so, you know, when you look at most investors, they go with what is easier. And they talk about that. Look, I'm going to buy class A property. It's easier when you get this return. There's less, are there, you know, you know, the price elasticity enables us to raise rents and rich people still have money and they're going to continue to have money and et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. Uh, and you hear these conversations all the time. You go to every conference and it's like, this is what everyone's talking about. 
Right. And I'm like, I'm the opposite. I'm looking at class C properties, the heavy lift, the really hard struggle stuff. And sometimes our investors get in with us and they're like, hey, how come I don't have a distribution month one? I'm like, because we bought it at 25% occupancy, buddy. Right. It takes time to change the culture, change, you know, to implement all of our environmental program stuff, our social program stuff, our governance stuff. The governance of that property has to change. It's got to be clean. It's got to be safe. You know, kids got to be able to be raised there. We're partnering with, you know, rainwater, you know, charitable foundation. We're partnering with all these different foundations and boys and girls club. And now we have a, you know, a unit where boys and girls can come there and, and learn and do their studies and get taught and then have, you know, activities. And now, you know, kids, you know, educational outcomes are better because they're not moving from apartment complex because they keep getting kicked out. But now somebody at the, you know, the property managers are helping them secure, you know, whatever a relief they need from, you know, whichever program is out there that can assist them. So kids are staying in school longer, their outcomes are better. And guess what? From a financial perspective, your tenants aren't rolling over as many times. We're still providing value that residents want. They're willing to pay more for, you know, washer dryer in their system, you know, instead of having their clothes stolen from the laundromat, right? you know, all these other things. And people are willing to pay for that. Our overall rents are still below market average, but they're way above where we started the property yet. And guess what? You know, there's no more SWAT teams not busting down the doors anymore at the property, you know, all these different aspects. It's a real change. Yeah. Major changes, you know, to the community at large also. I think it's really not one thing, it's several things, but those things are not what every investor is looking at in terms of changing around a property. And I think your approach is really should be the right one, but I'm sure, I mean, are you able to provide, you know, competitive returns to investors given all that? I mean, are you also getting, it sounds like you're involving a lot of organizations. I think that's very, very noble. And I think that's the right way to do it. Okay. But you know, businesses for a lot of people and they're thinking, okay, multifamily owning is a business. So are we still making money or still providing those returns to our investors? Yeah. So think about it like solar energy or any other clean investment. Is there a return there? Absolutely. Right. And so we're looking at high yield, high impact investment. So it's slow. So think of it more like a development project. Mm -hmm. So it takes us a little bit longer to get to the cash flow position that, that we want to. I mean, coordinating and getting all the work done. And, you know, this properties have been distressed for years. So deferred maintenance is usually a, a nightmare and it just takes time. So if we just look at it as a development project and if you're, you know, right. where we target our, you know, 20%, you know, IRRs and so forth. I think if we were to liquidate our portfolio right now, the average return to our investors would be somewhere in the 50s. Yeah, that's awesome. Because look, I mean, we're buying this property at 15 million, it appraised at 17 million. That after, you know, once it's fully occupied, it's worth 19 or 20 million. You know, we just created $5 million of equity in a year or two. Right. And we only had 5 million of equity going into the property. So we just doubled the entire investment. Uh, but it's not cash flowing yet because mm -hmm. it takes time for everything to catch up. Sure. It's obviously a different model than the, you know, what's very popular out there with the high cash flowing, quick turnaround, you know, deals that are just kind of taking advantage, I think, of the market conditions and, you know, pushing rents as high as possible and not necessarily making real change in those properties. 
It can be done, but I think your way is, from what I've heard in interviewing hundreds of syndicators and working with them, is quite different than what a lot of people are out there doing. I think a lot, there are quite a few people out there who are interested in impact investing and trying to find different programs that they can put in and things like that. But it sounds like what you're doing is very multifaceted. I mean, you're looking not only at the environmental issues and bringing it to make it safe, but also involving the tenants. I mean, that's what something you mentioned about having the property managers helping people find relief. That's not something that you hear too often. You know, it's like, okay, if you can't pay, you know, figure out a way, you know, or, or get out. That's not the right way. You don't want to do that because turnover is very costly, but also, you know, humane, right? Think about it in a humane way. Like yeah. if you can help these people find another way or find a better way, I think that's amazing. There's actually a great organization called, I have to remember, Keith Wasserman, who we interviewed you know, about a year ago on this podcast, started a, an organization that helps tenants who are normally you know, good paying and, and they went through some sort of economic downturn or some sort of you know, life event that caused them that they weren't able to pay rent and basically allows them to, this organization you know, foots the bill essentially for rent for these people so they don't have to move out because something happened like a very tragic, you know, event or something like that happened to who would otherwise normally be regular, right? Good paying on-time tenants. Yes. We've partnered with Rhino. They really help, you know, it's like insurance for tenants. They don't have to give Mm -hmm. a deposit. Deposit doesn't help me any financially, right? It's just money that I've got to sit on and look at and make sure we give it back to our residents. So Rhino has a really good insurance program for, for those folks. In regards to impact investing, that's exactly you know what it is. And if, if you look at the Rockefeller Institute, they have some really great literature on impact investing and different spectrums of you know impact investing that actually operates within a capitalistic paradigm that look, we can make money while we're making a difference, right? And the other end of the spectrum is you're gonna hand your money over to a nonprofit. And you're going to hope that some of that money actually makes it to the resident, right? Or the end user, right? So I, I don't know what March of Dimes is, but, you know, there's this is really weighted towards the organization. It, it takes money to pay people to do stuff. You know, I get that. but For sure. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. There are, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, nonprofits out there that are not not necessarily what you would think of as a nonprofit, where they're actually pocketing, you know, 50% or so of the actual income and the CEOs are making, yeah, and CEOs yeah. and executives in the company are making, you know, seven figures and the communities that could be helped are not being helped as much. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. And so all we want to be is look, you know, I just want to be a little, a little bit of salt that helps flavor, you know, the food that we're eating. Right. And so a little bit of salt can make a big difference. A little bit of leaven can make a big difference to bread. You know, there's like an infinite number of properties out there. What we're really seeking to do is is changing the way that people think about investing, changing the way that other operators operate. And, you know, we just want to make a difference. So how are you doing that? Because that's something that everyone needs to know about and learn about. And I mean, do you have any sort of program or any sort of like educational material that you are educating other investors or other operators out there to do and kind of follow in your footsteps? Because these, some of these things seemingly can be implemented by almost anyone if they just make the effort. It can be implemented by almost anyone. And so I'll be honest, like I've avoided the spotlight as much as possible to this point. When I was in like Africa during the Ebola response, 
you know, I was responsible for building all these Ebola treatment centers. I was the ground guy doing everything, coordinating, you know, engineering, making sure the trains were in the right locations. This is 200 bed. Maybe it should only be 100 bed. And coordinating with the state and the president and the ambassador and everybody. And then when all the camera crews would come up, I would say, great, go talk to those people. I'm going to stay over here, you know. And those people would come over and like, Sam, what's going on? I'm like, okay, this, 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 this. And like, okay, great. We're going to go tell the camera. Great. You know, <laughs> you know? And, and so I've always tried to stay out of that limelight. So I, you know, I haven't been interested in personal recognition. It's just not who I, I <laughs> am. And so what I've realized is that I really need to get my voice out there. And so, yeah. you know, we're partnering with, you know, a group that's behind some really, you know, famous folks who have their voices heard really well, but we're just, we speak a little bit differently. Our message is different. And, and I think it could revolutionize the way that people invest. That won't necessarily enrich me. I don't care. We just want, you know, it's a team effort. Mm-hmm. You know, commercial real estate, everyone knows is a team effort, or most people know it's a team effort. So, you know, let's work together and change our communities. Let's work together and make our investment matter rather than just trying to earn a return, right? Let's make our investments clean. Let's care about how the dollars are flowing and where they're going. And you're going to get taken care of. You're going to earn your nice return. But why not do that making a difference, right? Exactly. You can do both. And in fact, if that's your goal, it should be a priority. I know some other people that are involved in what's called impact investing. And in fact, I don't know if you'd be open to it, but just thinking out loud here, is there maybe a potential to start some sort of a community mastermind of operators who are interested in impact investing and just kind of give them the tools and resources and discuss and maybe brainstorm other ideas. I think there will be a lot of you know interest in that. It might be received very well, at least to some people that I know. Yeah, I would love to do that. I would be very happy to do that. You know, we can commiserate some of our stories, you know, closing on the property and you know, walking there and then seeing a SWAT team rush by you to go tackle some people and bust in doors. You're like, all right, <laughs> this is what we do. All right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've heard yeah. some of those war stories. Not too pretty. Well, especially when like, if you're making a tour with the broker and that happens, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, this is it. This is what we want. Everyone else is like, whoa, my gosh, this is not what we want. Yeah. And, you know, we're ready to do the heavy lifting. We've been doing it for a while and you know, you have to be willing to do that or partner with somebody who is. And so we, you know, we started working with institutional partners and, you know, to say that we're institutional grade, you know, I always think there's so much for us to do to get better, always stuff internally for us to get better. So give us a little bit of the rundown of where you guys started 2018, when you really kind of started the investment up to now, 2022, we're in the midst of it. How many properties, how many units, if you just give us, if that's a metric that you're even measuring by? Yeah. So yeah, we our metrics are a little bit different. So, you know, we measure how many lives we feel like we've impacted for the better. I mean, it's really, really hard to, you know, figuring out what that number is, but you know, we have that measure. We measure, you know, how much how many dollars we're pumping into those communities. It usually looks like CapEx dollars. But if you think about it, you're hiring local you know, steel workers and so forth. We do have our own construction company and our own construction crews that do a lot of the work, but all the skilled labor has to come from the local area. It has to, that's the way the government works. And then, you know, there's so much money that gets pumped into those communities. So we want to measure that because that's an impact. Everyone's doing it, but they don't measure it. They don't care necessarily about the impact beyond the property itself. Uh, That affects lives, right? And so we do measure those things. It's on our dashboard and 
and so forth. And we are really focused on, you know, changing a million lives. And I can't get there with my own company, just us. We have to partner with others. We have to, you know, like a mastermind where so many other people are doing that. It'd be great to measure, like, how many lives are we actually changing? You know, are we getting the results that we want to get? Mm-hmm. There's got to be a measurement system or it's ineffective, right? It's just bad policy. So where do we start? So we started back in 2018. After six months of preparation, we convinced my dad to join me. He rated his 401k account of $80,000, which is not very much money, especially when you're in your 60s. And I rated mine of $30,000, which is also not very much. Pay the the nasty little fee the government makes you pay if you use your funds on anything. And we bought a property. We negotiated ourselves into another property, did a master lease something I learned from one of the teachers on the internet talking about commercial real estate. We got a master lease, needed to come up with a hundred grand. And so I financed a car, maxed out a credit card, and my dad squeezed out a little bit more money out of his 80K and we came up with a hundred grand. So that second place we bought, both of them were distressed. The first one was kind of maxed out with three units. The second property was a hundred or was 42 unit a mobile home park. When we bought it, just really hadn't been touched in a long time, was making about five or six grand a month. My dad went did the construction, led that out there, moved to the property, essentially him and my mom. And they worked day in and day out, got to know the people there very well. And within seven months, it was clearing about 10,000 a month in cash. Mm-hmm. So we spent a hundred grand and we got 118,000 back in the first 10 months. That's great. And now you guys are focused on a little bit larger multifamily assets at this point. For us, we just found it was a lot easier to scale in apartment complexes. So we bought 10 mobile home parks, built a storage complex. The storage complex is now over in a triple net lease to an operator of storage, which is great for us, great for them. We built it, handed it over. And it's Alaska. It's really hard for us to operate it here in Texas. You know, we're going to offload those mobile home parks, much higher exit position than when we entered. We cleaned those places up. We made a difference, but we also erred in the amount of capex it required. Plus, COVID just killed us on the you know purchase of brand new homes. We were waiting for almost two years for new homes to come in, and so it just you know logistically it it was an, a bit of a nightmare for us. But each one of those places you know takes care of their own and is good, and they're safe now. <laughs> There's not cops showing up every day, and so we feel good about that. We feel like they're going to go to a better operator who can come in with much deeper pockets and take care of the needs there. So we're around 1,300 or so units now, and we're uh, under contract now with another 168 unit property in uh, Fort Worth, Class C. You know. Fits the bill. Looking forward to it. And we got it at a good entry price. And, you know, debt quotes coming back are still pretty good. Four and three quarters, five, That's six. Pretty yeah, right it's now. pretty good right now. So we're measuring, you know, what's going to yield the best return to our investors may actually be a higher debt quote that comes in with more proceeds. And, you know, the, the numbers game, right? Yeah. Because we can do lower interest, but, you know, coming in with more equity or we can do less equity at a higher interest rate and actually generate a better return to our investors. So those are things that we always think about going in. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's still a capitalistic paradigm, right? You have to make money. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there's much less competition for the assets that you guys are going after. Much less competition. And um, that one was off market. It was priced too high off market. When we looked at it, it went on market. 
rates change and so the prices came. Um, we went into best and final. Uh, once they talked to us, they were like, oh my God, goodness, you guys are squared. You know, so, you know, weren't the highest price and we weren't the highest amount of earnest money. Mm-hmm. And we still won the deal because they said, you know, we felt most confident that you guys are going to close. That's good. That's always usually the most important factor. Pick up. Yeah. yeah. All right, Sam, I want to transition now to what we call the final four. These are four questions that I ask all my guests. First question to you is, what is the worst job that you ever had? You know, I've had some pretty dirty jobs, I guess, you know, from fire department where I had to clean the bathrooms every day for two years because I was the lowest man on the pole. And if anyone's working in the fire department, you know, all the shenanigans that happen in the fire department, add the military on there and there's just more shenanigans. But I think honestly, the worst job I ever had was probably working as a consultant. For me, there was, there's no passion. There was no love. It was just, at the end of the day, it was just, you know, punch in, punch out. Let's go eat at fancy restaurants and et cetera, et cetera. And there was no meaning to me. I have to have meaning. You know, Victor Frankl's book was fantastic and about man's search for meaning, I I think. Speaks uh, speaks to who you are very much. So it makes a lot of sense why that that job wouldn't be, (laughs) would hang lower on the totem pole than the... uh, than the cleaning bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather clean bathrooms if it yeah, makes a difference. 100%. <laughs> yeah. I can relate to that. The second question, what's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? You know, when I was a humanitarian for a time, you know, The Ugly American was a really paradigm shifting book talking about really kind of that connection of policy to practicality, people on the ground and what's going on. You know, it tells a story of Americans buying and sending all this food into a country as goodwill and sending in all the trucks. And then the Russians going in and just putting their placard on the side of all the trucks from Russia with love, right? (laughs) And so we spend millions of dollars to help these, you know, these people. And then Russia gets the credit because they just stick their stickers on the side of the truck. You know, and, and thinking about, you know, am I the ugly American? Am I the person coming in and all these fancy doodads and gadgets and all this money and then not making a difference? Yeah, that makes sense. That clearly, uh, even not having read the book, just the way you're describing it clearly had an impact on you and what you're doing now. So uh, third question, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? This could be anything. You're at telling stories. That's a great skill. Have you connected with the book Story Brand? Have you come across that? Well, uh, no? I'll write that down. Yeah, that's a good one to check out. It really kind of breaks down the you know, the process of how to tell stories and makes it kind of easier. There's so much out there, but just a quick one that came to mind. So check out Story Brand. I'll look it up. And yeah, and fourth and final question, what does success mean to you? Success is something that you're always looking for or feel like you really have. <laughs> Because I always want to be challenged. And so, you know, we look at 1 million lives as being this ridiculously high number of uh, lives that we change for the better. I think when we achieve that goal, then we're probably going to say, let's do 10 million lives. And success is 10 million lives. Yeah. Now, and always, do I like cars? Yeah, I like cars. I like to tool on them and change them and do stuff and then sell it and buy another one. And I drive it. That's not success you know, fancy cars, a new Toyota is not success for me. Success is making a difference. And and can we do more? Absolutely. So finally, Sam, how can our listeners find you or reach out to you? Love to talk to 
people always love to, you know, share opportunities and help, you know, share thoughts and ideas about how to make difference. Please reach out to me at Sam at wildmountaincapital.com. I'll spell that just like you see there on the screen, wildmountaincapital.com, you know, or, you know, look me up on LinkedIn, Sam Sells. And yeah, I look forward to speaking to anyone, everyone. All right. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put that all in the show notes for anyone who wants to check that out. And thank you again for your time. This has really been enlightening. And and having that, you know, that thought that came into speech, hopefully we'll put it into action of the the idea of maybe creating some group mastermind. Cause I, I really think that could be something. So we'll have to follow up on that. And you know, I appreciate you taking the time out here today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Yona. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And yeah, just keep doing what you're doing, man. You're killing it. Great. Thank you very much. And <laughs> and thank you guys, all our listeners, for tuning in once again. We couldn't do this without you. And remember, the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you. 